Is there life after death? Did Jesus really rise from death? If Jesus did really rise from death, how would that change your life? And on the other hand, if Jesus didn't actually rise from death, how would that affect your life? Now, last week on Easter Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection. We saw from 1 Corinthians 15 that resurrection is at the very heart of Christianity. It's central to the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sin, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to many people. And today, we're going to keep talking about the resurrection. Now, why are we still talking about the resurrection if we touched on it last week? Well, we're still talking about it because, as we've seen, the resurrection, the resurrection is at the centre of Christian belief. But we're also talking about it because many people find it hard to believe. Many people find any, car, any kind of miracle hard to believe, especially the resurrection. And as Christians, we've got to be ready for that. The Bible says Christians should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope we have. Now, if someone on the street came up to you and asked, why are you so confident in the hope you have about the resurrection? First of all, what street are you on? And, and what a strange street that people are coming up and asking such a strange question. But, but secondly, more importantly, would you be able to give an answer for the hope that you have about the resurrection? Now, those are some of the reasons why we're still talking about the resurrection. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12, where Paul says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's writing to a church community in which some people are questioning the resurrection. Now, this is not surprising. When confronted with the claim that Jesus rose from death, most people's reaction is to doubt. We actually see this in the gospel. If you think about the, uh, the, the disciple Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, he was very doubtful when he heard Jesus had risen from the tomb. He said, until I see the holes in his hands and, he, and in his feet for myself, I will not believe. Some people are even more skeptical. Some people just dismiss the resurrection outright and say, the Bible would be better without it. Let, let's downplay the miracles. Let's try and rationalize the Bible. Now, Thomas Jefferson did just that. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, he literally got out a razor and glue. He got out his Bible and he cut the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John into little chunks. And then he arranged them in his own way and he threw out the bits he didn't like. He didn't want the miracles. It was Jesus minus the miracles, minus the resurrection, a more believable Jesus. He made a new Bible out of it, the Jefferson Bible. It's actually a real thing. Now, it's tempting, even as someone who's been a Christian for a while, to do just that. Maybe not with the glue and the razor, but just in thinking about my faith from day to day, to, to reframe it in my head so it's more believable. And what you end up with is a toned-down version of Christianity. It goes something like this. It goes, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great model of sacrificial service. Uh, he spoke truth to power. He, he cared for those in need. Jesus was an inspirational leader. He was perhaps maybe in touch with the divine. And by living like him, by trusting him, I have a shot at getting into heaven when I die, on the off chance that maybe there is a heaven and hell at the end of it all. 
It's a resurrectionless version of Christianity. So what's Paul's answer to the question, what if there is no resurrection? Now, in, in the rest of the passage, we'll see Paul say three things. Firstly, life is incredibly bleak if there's no resurrection. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection brings incredible hope. And thirdly, Paul is living proof of how the resurrection gives us hope. So let's go. First, life is incredibly bleak if there's no resurrection. Have a look from verse 13. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's a bleak picture. Paul says that if Jesus didn't come back to life, then if you're a Christian, your faith is futile, your message is misleading, and you're just sad. You're the most pitiful people on the planet. More than that, if Jesus didn't come back to life, there's no hope for those who have been lost. Those who've died, they're gone for good. Those things we say at funerals about going to a better place, it's not true if Jesus didn't rise. More than that, you're still in your sin if Jesus didn't rise. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise, but there is still a God, you've got no basis for thinking God is okay with you. Now, it's, it's worth seeing all this. No matter how you look at it, the world is an incredibly bleak place if Jesus didn't rise from death. So what do we do with all this? Christianity hinges on the resurrection. You've got Paul saying life is incredibly bleak if there was no resurrection. But at the same time, you've got pressures from outside and inside the church to tone it down and to stop talking about it because many people simply refuse to consider the miraculous. What do we do? What do we do? And this is what we do. We ask the question, what actually happened with Jesus? Let's go to the people who were actually there, who actually lived in Jesus' time. Let's weigh up the evidence and see. Let's not just imagine what happened. Let's think about it. Let's investigate. And this is where our understanding of the Bible becomes so important. The New Testament is a collection of books. There's four reports of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. There's a report of uh, what happened after Jesus' ascension and a series of letters written to churches and individuals in the first century. The New Testament is deeply historical. But let's consider who wrote the New Testament. Those who were there, Jesus' disciples, Jesus' close associates, Matthew, a tax collector who worked for the Romans, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, who betrayed Jesus multiple times out of fear, Paul, who spent years persecuting and killing Christians on behalf of the Jews, James and Jude, two of Jesus' own brothers, Mark and Luke, who traveled with Peter and Paul and wrote down what they saw of Jesus. These people were incredibly close to Jesus. These people were 
They were ordinary people. They were fearful. They were doubtful. They seemed to be scared. They seemed to be concerned first and foremost about their own self-preservation. What happened to these disciples? Eventually, they became fearless. They became bold. They travelled the ancient world telling people they had seen Jesus rise from death. History tells us 11 out of the 12 disciples were brutally killed, martyred for preaching about Jesus. So we, we have to ask the question, what could possibly explain this transformation in the disciples? And the answer is this. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose on the third day and he appeared. Jesus appeared. He showed Thomas the wounds in his hands. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. He appeared to his brothers. He appeared to Paul. And one by one, they all had their worlds turned upside down because they'd witnessed Jesus be crucified and they witnessed Jesus rise from death. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, He doesn't need to give any other evidence to prove Jesus rose because the people he was writing to, they knew Paul himself had seen the risen Jesus and they knew he wouldn't lie because Paul had suffered so much for the message he was proclaiming. Instead, what Paul does is he launches into a vision of the future. And this is the second point. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection fills life with hope. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the first fruits of a harvest season give you an indication of what to expect over the next little while. It confirms the harvest is coming. You see the first apple growing in an orchard at the start of harvest season, and you know more apples are coming. Jesus' resurrection is like the first apple in the harvest. There'll be more resurrections to come. Those who have faith in Jesus have his promise that they too will rise to everlasting life. Just as from Adam's rebellion in Genesis, that set the tone for humanity's attitude to God, Jesus' resurrection sets the tone for those God chooses to save. Because Christ has been raised, we we can trust Jesus when he describes how history will unfold. And Paul spells it out for us. He says, Jesus is coming back again. Those who have faith in him will be raised from death. All dominion, authority and power that stands against Jesus will be destroyed. The final result will be a heavenly kingdom where God reigns, where Jesus is with his people, where death is no more. This is the hope Christians have. And it's not an uncertain hope. It's a solid, sure hope. Now, at this point, I'm just going to come out and say it. Verse 29 is a strange verse. So have a look. Paul says, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, it sounds like a watertight argument whatever it is, but the truth is, I have no idea what Paul's talking about when he says baptize for the dead, and truth is, no one really knows. There's lots of different theories. It's not talked about anywhere else in the Bible, 
but most likely it's a cultural practice still held onto by some people in Corinth at that time. Now, Paul doesn't say anything good or bad about it, but the point he seems to be making is that anything you do with reference to the distant future doesn't make sense if you don't believe people will be alive in the distant future. And this is where we come to the third and final point. Paul himself is living proof of how the resurrection gives us hope. Let's think about Paul. Paul's suffering a great deal because he believes in future resurrection. But it's totally illogical if he's just making it up. Paul says, why do you think I'm willing to be in danger every hour? Why do you think as I go about preaching the gospel, I'm willing to be mistreated and go through near-death experiences constantly? Paul had to fight wild beasts. He worked constantly. He was imprisoned multiple times, flogged many times. He was beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked. Paul once spent a night and a day in the open sea. He was constantly on the move. He was in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger everywhere he went. He went without sleep. He often went without food. Why did he do all this? Why would anyone subject themselves to a life like that? Because he saw the risen Jesus. So he knew that dying wasn't actually death at all. He knew that to die is gain. If this life is all there is, then you might as well live in the moment. You might as well eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, it's just a game. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And even most serious non-religious people admit to this somewhat. So an, athe- uh, an American atheist philosopher named Thomas Nagel once wrote a book called What Does It All Mean? It's his take on the meaning of life from an atheist standpoint. And he says this. Let me read this quote to you. He says, If you think about the whole thing, there seems to be no point to it at all. Looking at it from the outside, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. It's pretty bleak. If this life is all there is, death is the final full stop on your life. But if resurrection is real, death is just a comma. If resurrection is real, this life is just a drop in the ocean of what you'll experience from here to eternity. So right here, right now, if we believe in the resurrection, what does Paul have to say to us? Check out verse 33. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, why is Paul saying this? Well, think of it this way. There's a saying that goes, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Have you ever heard that? You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that's why business hubs exist. If you surround yourself with people hell-bent on being as productive and innovative as possible, you'll naturally become more interested in being productive and innovative. If you surround yourself with people who laugh constantly, you'll find yourself laughing more. If you surround yourself with pessimists, you'll probably become a pessimist. 
So who should we surround ourselves with? Paul's saying, don't be misled. Surround yourself with genuine Christians who believe in the resurrection and sharpen each other, build each other up, get excited about the resurrection together. Because if you spend all your time with people who deep down don't believe in the resurrection, that's going to bankrupt your faith. That's why church and community is so important. It's going to help you live out verse 34, where Paul says, Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. If you've been drifting, if you're in two minds about the resurrection, or perhaps you've just gone into cruise control as a Christian, Paul would urge you to come back to your senses, to repent, to really engage your mind in thinking these things through, to not be ignorant of God, to not ignore God, but to give Him your full attention. Do so within the context of Christian community. And ask the question together, what really happened? Never stop wondering about the resurrection. I think it's, it's actually good to ask questions about the resurrection. It's kind of strange if you never ask any questions about the most miraculous thing that ever happened. But let me encourage you to be faithfully curious about the resurrection. Rock solid in your trust in Jesus, but not afraid to wrestle with it and grow stronger in your faith. And when it comes to this life, be like Paul. Don't live for this life now. Don't worry about living a great life now, a comfortable life now. That will come in heaven. Worry about living a faithful life, a God-honoring life. Even if that means your life is ordinary now. Now, most of us, we will live quite ordinary lives and that's okay. Lives of faithful, quiet suffering, faithful, patient service of others. The resurrection fills us with hope that the future is glorious. Let me finish with a story from Don Carson, a Canadian theologian. He wrote a book about his dad who lived a fairly ordinary life, but a faithful one. Perhaps you've had Christian family members pass away recently. These words are definitely for you. But they're also for all of us because we'll all die one day. Now, Don writes this at the end of the book, and he's writing about his father. Let me read this account of his father's death. He says this. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance into the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good or, or a great man, he was, after all, quite ordinary, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. May we all hear those words when we die. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for Jesus who came into our mess, into our world. Thank you that Jesus died for our sin to make us right with you. Thank you that he was buried. Thank you that he rose again to new life and that he appeared to many. 
thank you that we can have great confidence as Christians in the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that there were witnesses who testified about Jesus boldly. Thank you that we have your words, their words, in the pages of the Bible. Father, help us to trust in your word. Help us to trust in the hope of future resurrection that Jesus brings. Thank you that life is full of hope. The future is full of hope because of Jesus' resurrection. Father, we look forward to the day when we too will rise to new life. And we pray that in this life, we would live in light of eternity, that we would live for that heavenly kingdom to come. In Jesus' name, amen.